Go Late Selects, brought to you by Sky. Watch new, exclusive, and unmissable content only on Sky. You know the way there's been a heat wave in Ireland, anyways. Well, there was. It's gone, and now the thunderstorms are here. Would you be my oh, thunder buddy? Thunder buddy. Um, to be that now, do, do we have to be in bed together holding thumbs or something, or is, is that my way? holding <laughs> thumbs? Is that what you call it? Mark Wahlberg and Ted listen, did a movie being, and they listen chant together. They movie. did, yeah. And listen, as to being in bed just, together, just, if it's if it's good enough for Lauren Hardy and it's good enough for Mark and Wise, it's good enough for you and me. Let's do it. And we begin this week's podcast with a minute silence. Oh, that just pretty much for radio or podcast, does it? Not really. No, they could just press pause. What, no. are, what are we pausing for? Are we in mourning? For? Ah, bollocks. Bollocks, bollocks to United. I'm in good form. Don't ruin it. Carry on. Right. Give me something good to watch, brother. All right. Let's just uh, gloss over that and ignore that and say welcome to Go Loud Selects, a Go Loud original, a Go Loud production with Simon Delaney and me, Aidan Power. Do, do we need to keep And it's brought to you album? by who, Aido? Uh, Sky. Well done. Sky Ireland. Thank you, Sky Ireland. Yeah, who are known as Sky. Something? Not Air Sky. They're just known as Sky. That's right, yeah. And our first recommendation we want to give you this week, this is big news. There is people literally drooling over themselves, salivating for a brand new series, which is, and it will kind of give away, look, everyone knows if you watch Game of Thrones, you know what this is. It's House of the Dragon. And all the dragons roared as one. They consider the matter urgent. That of your succession. Who else would have a claim? The firstborn child. Rhaenyra. No queen has ever sat the Iron Throne. The king has an heir, Daemon Targaryen. I will not be made to choose between my brother and my daughter. And this is the much-anticipated prequel to Game of Thrones. Cue the music. I don't know the music. I never watched a second of Game of Thrones. Nor, well, I did. I, I did. I watched two episodes and I went, no, not for me. And I know a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? It's the best show ever made. I'm sure it is, but it just wasn't for me. Uh, first red flag was a brother and sister having sex with each other. That kind of made me go, do I really need to keep watching this? And then a dragon appeared and I went, fuck it, I'm out. Right. Okay. Well, there's a hearty recommendation for the prequel that's coming up. <laughs> no incest and no dragons. Actually, there's lots of dragons because it's called House of the Dragon. So look, uh, people will know because they've been uh, dying for this since Game of Thrones finished, that there's this whole other uh, story to explore prior to the Game of Thrones um, era. And what does sound very exciting, because I'm a fan of both of these actors, it's starring Paddy Considine, who's a terrific actor. Have you ever worked with him, Simon? I haven't, no. I met him a couple of times, a gentleman, yeah. absolute gentleman, well-known as one of the nicest guys in the business, a lovely fella. He is in uh, one of my favourite films. It's a boxing movie. Uh, it's made in the last five years, maybe even less, probably. It's called Journeyman. It is ah, right. terrific. Uh, it's grim, and it tells the story of a journeyman boxer and all the the risks and the downsides of that um, brilliant movie. He's in this uh, new show, as is Matt Smith. And uh, this is uh, chronicling the uh, the Targaryens. Doctor Who, Matt Smith. 
Doctor Who Matt Smith, yes. Oh, Uber right, popular okay. Matt Smith. His name always pops up when they're talking about, oh, who's going to be the next James Bond? His name gets bandied about. Little insight so, for you. Um, yes. I did audition for House of Dragons. Did you? And now when you were going to audition for it, did you go, Jesus, maybe I'll watch an episode of Game of Thrones? Just, you know, just to have a vague idea of what this, this um, TV show is In my is extensive about. research to prepare for the audition that I put myself <laughs> you asked your 15 year old. Audition, I asked my wife who'd watched every episode of Game of Thrones three times and is one of the world's biggest fans of the show. Um, and uh, needless to say, I didn't get it because I'd be rather more excited about the people coming out than I am now at the moment. But, uh, yeah, I read, well, it's, I say I read the script. I was sent sides. You weren't sent the script and you were sent, sent dummy sides. They weren't even the real words you were going to be saying. It was that protected. You had to sign NDAs to even audition for it. But, um, breaking news is I'm not in it. That's probably cheered a lot of people up. I'd say, anyway, <laughs> when does that start? I don't. We did say a few weeks ago that we did, we'd always have to preface everything with, well, is Simon in it or not? And if not... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get never stopped you saying something was shite before, but how and ever. <laughs> it is on Sky. And I don't know if this is a, an indicator of whether a show is good or not, but um, each episode costs uh, at least 16 million euros to make. So it's it's big wow. and it's lavish, as you would expect uh, from Game of Thrones. And, and uh, you always, so far... You all- you the also know, Ado, it's a big show that uh, when it's got a spin off in terms of it's got Sue, what's her name? You used to present the Bake Off, Sue, Mel, Sue, Sue. Pollard. Thank no. you. Is it Sue Pollard? Pollard? No, Sue Pollard was in fucking Heidi High, you plank. Um, oh, it's um, Sue Perkins. Sue Perkins. Sue Pollard is doing a show about House of Dragons. That's going to be quality television. Now. Hang on. I'm okay, sure. Back up there. What, what, who did you mention? Sue? Sue, who Sue, does what? Man, Sue, Sue Perkins is doing yeah. a kind of a watch along okay, show. I was right. Yeah. Um, about the House of Dragons series. Uh, and I know there's going, to, there's going to be all sorts of other sister shows and brother shows too. The main series that's going to run. So for fans and fanatics of Game of Thrones and subsequently House of Dragons, there's going to be a huge amount of content for them to uh, dive into. And you know what? I was half thinking, will I jump into Game of Thrones? Will I? Will I? Will I? John, have well, you watched it? if your wife it? watched it, why did you not do it, Simon? Sorry, John, before you come in there. Because just dragons. Yeah, I actually, I'm much like yourself, Aiden. I watched the first couple of episodes. I did like what I saw. I thought, yeah, I could get probably sucked into this. But at that point, there'd already been about three or four seasons out. I thought, I don't oh. have the time for this. I really... I, I, not even not to be so precious about it but there was other stuff I wanted to watch and people had been so into it for so long probably spoiled every good point in the show at, at that kind of juncture I just thought maybe this isn't for me but I could tell obviously great cast a lot of imagination going into it great source material and obviously the potential for it say prequels etc but not not really into the kind of fantasy yeah, look, stuff. Maybe just, we've missed crap. out because it was a, a seminal TV show, one of the most watched TV Absolutely. shows in the world. I think a bit maybe similar to you, John, and maybe this is a, some sort of level of immaturity on my part, but the more people were talking about it and the more they were like, what do you mean you're not watching it? You have to watch it. It makes me a bit more, fuck off. I'm not going to now. I was a bit like, yeah, why aren't you yeah, watching I was a bit like more? that about Breaking like, Bad, and then I eventually, seven, eight years after it finished, I binged it in about four weeks and went... Yeah, they were right. It's fucking yeah. right. <laughs> so, yeah. But I uh, haven't told any of them yet. So when is that available yeah. to watch, Ido? Oh, only a few days to go. First episode uh, will be hitting your screens on Monday. So we're, we're on the run-in. Beautiful. Now, I do believe there's someone in the waiting room, is there? 
Well, joining Simon and myself on the podcast this week is a man who doesn't need an introduction, but he indeed deserves one. He is a, a rock star, a podcaster, uh, a mental health advocate, and an all-round sound guy. And there's probably plenty more we could add to that list. Let's bring him on. It is Brezzy, Niall Breslin. How are you, man? Good. How are you? Good. Probably missed a few things now off listen, the list. Can we, Maybe can we, we should keep... say he's also a man who's suffering with a sinus infection. Oh, yeah. A proper, he is, yeah. He proper is, yeah. One. Now... Come here, Niall or Brezzy? Which was the which I, do you prefer? God, the whole Brezzy thing happened because I was doing the voice, <laughs> and they they didn't even ask me what my name they wanted on the chair. And I came in one day and it said Brezzy, and you know RT budget, so they weren't able to change it. <laughs> so, uh, it was that's just your name, and I'm like, so that is no matter what oh, you do when you do dear. television, that is you stuck for the rest of your life. That is you in a box, so right. Brezzy. I mean, I've been called Brezzy growing up, but not. My other name is Big Face, so yeah. I'm glad they didn't write Big Face in the chat. <laughs> yeah. Big Face, Which really? I, I, I think it's relatively proportioned to the rest of my body, but that was just something somebody said when I was young and it never left. Okay. Was you have was that the worst face. nickname you had as a kid? No. Okay. No. Can you repeat any of yours? There was one years ago that we'd, uh, like, there was uh, <laughs> one time in class, somebody, it wasn't me, Shot themselves and um, shot they themselves. Or but shot themselves. They didn't know who it was. So about five of us got called shitty arse for about ten years. <laughs> and it was like, who was it? Obviously, nobody was going to come forward. I thought it was one of the Christian brothers, to be honest. But um, nobody. Did you ever so, find out so who it was? Ten of us had to take it on the chin and be called shitty arse for a few years. But was it not obvious as to who it was? That the fellow who was walking around uh, shit up and down the back of his leg. It right, wasn't the, uh, the shit it mystery wasn't. continues. <laughs> right, Brazy, before we get stuck into talking about TV and films and things you like and you don't, uh, how's your summer been? Uh, I know you were you at the FLA last week, so are you was, fresh from the FLA? I was at the FLA, and if you ask me to describe it, it's going to be really hard because it was <laughs> it's an indescribable. Incre- Somebody called it Coachella for trad music, which I think is really unfair because Coachella is about as authentic as a something that is not very like yeah. the flag is the most authentic thing you've ever been at it feels there's a purity to it you've like eight-year-olds who are better musicians than most people i know playing accordions outside shops being fed you know <laughs> i keep going back to the tommy tiernan sketch about the kaylee you know when you look out the window and all of a sudden you're on yeah. the fucking moon it was like that <laughs> in Mullingar. it's like the whole town just rise um and it was it was Stunning. It was absolutely stunning. And I was never prouder of my hometown. I really wasn't. They just nailed it. Where do you think that the whole Irish, traditional Irish music scene is at the minute? Because, you know, in myself and Aidan's former capacity on a, on a sofa, we'd be interviewing various music stars who crisscross the country, you know, all the time. In terms of trad music, though, where where is the scene at the minute, Niall? Is it is it in a healthy state? Has it never been better, or does it well, need help? Well, it depends. What you is your metric for judging where the scene is in terms of players? I've never seen. Like, I mean, I wouldn't be massively versed in it, but when I was at the Fly, I was like, this isn't just players who are decent. This is world class musicians, like world class musicianship mm-hmm. from kids to, you know, there's one guy who played the guitar. I can't even remember his name and. He didn't even look at it. I remember when we made, like, I was there with four session guys because we were doing a, a, a thing for Tina G, TG Cahar that night. And they were looking at these kids going, what in the name of God is this? This is just world class. <laughs> but they came from all over the world. You had American musicians, 
the whole thing was amazing. So often in music, we, we the metric is commercial success, and that's a terrible metric for music. And it's, yeah, I think I think the metric I'd measure by is how many people are we attracting into the business in terms yeah, of young well, players. Mullingar had half a million people there in in ten days, and Jesus about half of them Christ. were musicians. And people had you go into a different world. This world for me, I think, is a bit chaotic at the moment, and it's a little bit hard to get your head around. It's a little bit rinsing, but every single person who was at the flat just lost the world for whatever time they were there, and it just that's to me is is the power of what music is. And also in the pandemic, like we, 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 I was kind of very much dealing a lot with, you know, Cash and Martin and on the media around what, what happened to musicians and how we were treated. The reality is, you know, and this isn't going to be a boo government because the government, the reality is they don't know how it works. They had no idea. Cash and Martin wasn't on the COVID committee. We had no voice. And if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And that's what happened to us. So I said it to the, the industry, we should never, ever let that happen to us again. And we should value what we are and value what we do and never let it be diminished by, you know, governments or policies or stuff. So I think stuff like the FLA really highlights the power, e- even economically, what music brings to a location. You look at those festivals we have across Ireland. They're, they're, for every euro you spend at a gig or a festival, eight euro go, goes back into the economy. It's a very economically viable industry, but it was treated like absolute mm. dirt in the pandemic. Couldn't agree with you more, man, in, yeah. with, with everything you've said. Um, and, and like you say, wait, you see it at the flat, we see it across the summer at all the other festivals. People are enjoying themselves like they always did, but maybe, just maybe, people are appreciating it that little bit more uh, now. When it comes to TV, given how busy you are with, with all the aspects of your life, do, do you find yourself, do, do you take much time to watch TV? Do you enjoy uh, disappearing into a, a box set or binging on, the, on a, a Game of Thrones or something like that? I do, but something's happened to me in the pandemic that's weird, and I haven't explained it. I'm actually doing a full podcast on it called Morbid Curiosity. I never, ever, ever in my life watched horror movies. I hated them. I hated them. No offense, Simon. I hated them. And I cannot get enough of them anymore. I cannot stop watching them every single day. My partner lies in and she just shivers on the couch going, why are we watching this? I cannot stop it. And How it's so weird. That? I don't know. And I like. Mm. I mean, you, you, I've obviously seen the true crime thing has just erupted because I think people are really curious into yeah, yeah. the minds of people who do absolutely horrific things. But the horror idea, my brother said to me, I said it to my brother, I said, I need to talk to you about something. I'm watching these, I can't stop watching horror movies and I think there's something wrong with me. And he goes, there's one film I want you to watch. And I'm like, what's that film? And he said, it's only on YouTube. He said, but prepare yourself for it. And it's called Treads. <laughs> And it's about a nuclear fallout in Sheffield, right, in 1984, which straight off the cuff sounds depressing. I've seen and the trailer. It is yeah. so grim. It is the grimmest thing. And I, 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 I'm not doing a spoiler here because you shouldn't watch it because it's just really, really horrific. But right at the end, you're like, you know the way there's always just that little bit of moment where you're like, oh, okay, okay, everything's fine again. Thank God they got through it. And you won't have this like baby and she was holding the baby and I'm like, oh, thank God they survived. The baby didn't survive. It was just dark to the very last moment. And I watched it and I was depressed for three days after it, but I still watched it again. (laughs) 
Jesus. I don't know what's wrong with me. And maybe it's because the pandemic was such a car crash that I was like, I need to look at things that are worse than this. Wow, wow. Just to reset yourself, kind of realign yourself. I'm interviewing a guy actually after this called, um, he's an academic guy in America. He studies this idea. It's a psychologist that studies this. Colton Scribner is his name. And he basically does research into why we're obsessed with morbid stuff and films and true crime. And he's, it's, it, it, I'm so interested in it because it, it's me. It's what I've gone through and I've been really, literally bet into it. And my mum used to watch them a lot when I was growing up, but I'd, I'd hate them. But now it's all I watch. And the bizarre thing is, as, as someone who spent time on the set of a horror, you know, I work, John and Conjuring 2. Banging horror as well. It's a great, it's a great yeah. franchise. They're, actually, they're, they're good now. They're they're, they're shit to talk about stuff. Yeah. Did I, did I frighten yeah, the shit yeah, out yeah. you? Are you with me? Yeah, ex? yeah. You, 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 I was just the thing is because I've always known you as this. Like, I'm glad you played a really nice guy in it. It's like if you turn into an absolute disaster, I, was like, I couldn't buy that. Like, I can't. He's too nice. <laughs> he's too nice of a lad. But oh, was like, he's got it in him. He's got that actor's depth and breath. He can play so, psycho. He, he was no. He was he was the good lad in, in the, the film. I was that, yeah, but, but having spent time on a set, I, I, I've spent time on a lot of comedy sets. And the funniest set that I've ever been on was the set of The Conjuring 2. <laughs> this is, there you go. This is, this is bizarre. And, and I, I've ha- I had conversations with James Wan, who directed that whole franchise. And, you know, he's a, he's, his hero was John Carpenter back in the day. And, uh, and he'd, he'd read up about it and, Carpenter apparently said the same thing back when he was making his classics that they were that they were just fucking funny places to be, and I unlike you, I'd never seen a horror film in my life, Niall. When I was flying over to LA to do that, I'd had I was reading the script and shit myself. But I was more fascinated as to how they were going to do it. What were the visual effects going to be? And I, honest to God, have never laughed as much on a set of my life. And yet, when I went and sat down and watched, I introduced the Irish premiere. I it frightened the absolute bejazer, and I knew it was going to happen. I'm watching myself. I know who's behind the door. I know what's around the corner, and I was shitting myself. And I, I've I've never. It is the only horror film I've ever watched, and I haven't watched another one since. I've watched Conjuring two a few times now, just to get the ins and outs. Of it. But you know, the, the, the one was I watched the other day, and you talk about funny on set. It's the old school ones. I watched Salem's Lot the other day and I actually fell apart oh, yeah. off the chair laughing at how bad it was because the graphics, they obviously didn't have the money for the graphics and like the vampire was, was like yeah. floating but you could see the ropes over the up. Look at me. Look at me, teacher. <laughs> I just was like, this is like, I can't believe. And you remember all the stories, like people walked out of the cinema and it was banned in 10 countries. That's right. Yeah, I was like, yeah. this was banned because well, it was here. so shy. You said your your mum used to watch them. Was she watching like, was it like Hammer House of Horror stuff or watching like The Exorcist yeah, like, and The Shining? So, and I come in every day. If if dad wasn't watching the soaps, mum would just watch horrors all the time. And I come in and she would. She, wow, she used to geez. watch, the other thing she watches, she used to love watching operations. I'd come into the house and there was some guys head split open and she'd be sitting there eating dinner watching this stuff 
And I just never understood it. Yeah, but my, with her, is like she just loved Stephen King was her big kind of thing. She's a big Stephen King yeah, fan. Yeah. And uh, I kind of, I, I've kind of, I think I've rinsed myself of them now. And I'm kind of, I've got it out of my system. And I, I'm not watching them every day now. But then the other TV show that I loved was American Horror Story. I thought that was brilliant. I thought it was, some of them really? were dodgy enough, some of the episodes. But the Asylum one. But some of the best writing and TV that I'd seen in a long time, and it, it was it was really interesting because even given the work that I do, it it, it really kind of highlighted. I do a lot of work into. Uh, I'm doing a, a kind of case study piece on the Irish <clears throat> Irish psychi- psychiatric systems now, and a lot of what happened is people ended up in there when there was nothing wrong with them, mm-hmm. and that was the horror was that they they go in there and there was nothing wrong with them, and then obviously they become institutionalized and they would lose their minds. I can't imagine what you're so afraid of. Get on your knees and we'll pray it all the way. And that happened in Ireland, but they told that story so well and so terrifyingly. In mm-hmm. And often with horror, they, they really, really, really stigmatize mental health. They really use it as the trope that makes no sense. And they never, they never give a context. And there's a lot of research in case, you know, out there around why it's incredibly... Um, stigmatizing and actually just too cliche really you know it's just a cliche did, did you watch the um did you watch the nurse ratchet one was that was that part yeah, of the american was, yeah, with, as well she it was, what did yeah you think of that? Was, i mean it was i mean the thing about it is the the storylines are just so strong and these these they're just i mean you look at the writers yeah. behind them these are like these are the best the best writers that are trying to get and like the thing about yeah. some of these storylines is they have to tell the cliche. They have to. They have to tell that story. That's what frightens us. And sometimes they get it really right. Like they get it right, and they tell the right type of story. Like in Asylum, they really showed that idea of what happens to people when you, you know, when you when you take their freedom from them and you treat them in a way. And what was really interesting about it was, you know, some of these tell great stories. Like the thing I'm really interested in, in like asylums and stuff is we never talked about the word trauma. So we're like, all this terrible things happen to these people. And, you know, of course, sometimes the most healthy human responses that you find yourself, like, unfortunately, being immensely distressed. And and back in the day, like in, in Ireland, if you were traumatized, you were just put into asylums. You weren't, you weren't taken care of. You weren't helped. You weren't guided through your trauma. And some of these amazing TV writers, I think American Horror Story got it right, and wasn't the expression quite often used back in the day if someone was suffering with, with, with their mental health, it was like, oh, their nerves are at them. No one could ever put any more of a description on that other than, oh, their nerves are gone or their nerves, she suffered with her nerves or he suffered with her nerves. Uh, so yeah. Ireland, Ireland had the highest rate of, uh, globally, by multiple, the highest rate of psychiatric com- uh, course of confinement in the world by a multiple between 1900 and 1970. Really? And wow. like the reality is you can't say that we we had bigger mental health issues than anyone else. It was just what we did to people. It was a poverty thing. It yeah. was a social thing. And loads and loads of people ended up in these hospitals who had very little wrong with them. And one of the researches that I'd done on one of the stories that I'm telling, she basically threw tea at her husband who was cheating on her and, and we're telling her story. And he was cheating on her because he put his kids into a into a home. And she was put into an institution and she died there 22 years later. It's men got to do that to women. So it's all this stuff. Some of the storytelling and great in great TV writing, it's able to get all this nuance. It's able to kind of direct it and focus yeah. it. And it's able to give you a message at the end of it. 
and some of them just do the 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 absolute bullshit like let's just go with the easy target here and they kind of stigmatize things like schizophrenia and psychosis and things like this and some of them actually explain what they are and how they happen and how they're formed and i think that's really important but horror movies horror the horror genre is the biggest culprit in in kind of telling that story and the escaped inmate it it just it's it's too easy to tell that story and yet it has such a huge audience and even if you look at that branching out on the TV, you say the true crime stuff, the documentary stuff, the 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 the, the drama series. We just can't, we can't I get enough of it. Um, in, in terms of, yeah. yeah, true crime is great. Well, in terms of true crime, then I mean, are you a documentary guy or do you like dramatizations? I or think what do the docs documentaries are so good now. They're so researched and they've got yeah. the budgets to do them. Sometimes, if you do these research pieces yeah. and you don't have budgets, they're just they just fall on their arse. And but like yeah. obviously Netflix has these massive budgets to do these true crime. Uh, kind of investigations, even into people like Son of Sam and people like that, that you, these stories that have been yeah. told, but never with the detail that we now know. But what they do now is like mm-hmm. Mindhunter came out and I was kind of explaining the idea that, you know, a lot of the, the interesting thing about true crime that always jumps out to me is, is generally everyone, most people who are serial killers, when they start t- giving you the context of their life and how they were brought up, you start to understand. Mm-hmm. And it's in no way, it, it's an explanation for why, why certain people end up the way they are, um, but I think it's really good because it, you know, it it gives you the full context to someone even like, you know, Jer- uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, like people like that. There, mm. but the true crime genre is just uh, in the podcast audio world is just absolutely shitting on everything else. Yeah, yeah, it is except of this course, show, yeah. except this show. <laughs> You mentioned you mentioned your other half, uh, Niall, and <clears throat> like, what about sort of guilty TV pleasures? Is there anything that she watches that you have found yourself crawling onto the sofa to watch and not miss an episode of? <laughs> like, are you an antiques roadshow man? Are you are, are you a Love Island man? No, you know, I, I, you know what? <laughs> or what and she I don't is. say this because oh, I, I actually really, really, I find Love Island uncomfortable to watch at twenty five million different reasons, but it. it it's just because I just can't watch it. It just, I, it, just from an entertainment point of view, from a, yeah, I, I just, it wouldn't be my type of television. But I have this other interesting theory no. that when Big Brother came out, I think that's mm. when the world changed to this kind of performative element where everyone performs everything rather than, you know, this hashtag be kind bullshit rather than actually just mm. be kind, just do it. I don't need to see you filming it. But I think yeah. Big Brother is the thing that shifted that. People say, it was social media, but I think that was the start because people started to almost turn into that performative. Everything is on TV. Everything I do has to be witnessed. And something happened in our culture after Big Brother. I definitely believe I, I, I haven't yeah. done the homework on it, but I'm going to do the homework on it. No, I think you're right because there wasn't, uh, there was nothing like it. It was groundbreaking. There was no platform like it for, I mean, the thing that I would describe that came closest to it was the royal family where we were watching people mm. sitting at home watching people watching the telly? They did mm. fucking nothing. They just sat there they, yeah. on the sofa. I think after, but Big yeah, Brother after did the first season of Big Brother, I think a lot of people who appeared on that very first season of Big Brother in the UK, the one we were aware of, I'm not sure if it existed in anywhere else in the world before that. There was, um, I think, somewhat of a, a, a genuine naivety to them going in, but it was after that. It was everyone who watched it then who thought, oh, I can go on that show and have people watch me being a certain way and so after season one 
people went in there not for the 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 life experiment. They went in there to seek fame and attention. I do believe a lot yeah, of people yeah. who went into season one went in with a much more honest curiosity. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like I like it's not like I have nothing. It's not like yeah. a, I have a problem with it. It's just I think it's these formats. I so like I've. This mad you're getting all my mad theories that I've written down on the page here. Well, like I do believe what's happened because of reality television, and then as it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and we went into things like true crime. I think generally, when we consume anything, whether it's TV or audio or whatever it is, or film, or no, especially our social media in particular, we're struggling to differentiate now between fiction and fact. We we see everything as mm-hmm. fiction, so. You know, we look at the true crime thing and part of it looks at it like it's entertainment, but we don't look at it like 25 people were murdered, 25 people lost their family. We don't see that anymore. It's even how we engage with social media. Like people put up these funny posts about the war in the Ukraine. I'm like, people are actually, I think what we're doing is we're getting so skewed with the amount of information we have and the type of television we have that we're starting to not realize that this actually is happening. This is real. This Mm. isn't a TV show. Um, which is really interesting sociologically. And I think it's, it's you know, on TV, it's always been dynamic and changes. But I, I definitely think it's it's never been more, con- it's never kind of sculpted our cultural landscape more than it is now because TV has to compete with social media. Med- old media has to compete and social media has no rules. There is no rules. There's no regulation. So now what you're seeing is media having to kind of do the same to try and compete with it which what happens is the best way to compete with it is just to shock the living shit out of us. That's what do it. Yeah. And I think, and that's the worry. I think we're by and large desensitized to fucking everything these days, you know, um, yeah. to the point I where. So sorry, this is, this is my way of distracting answering the guilty pleasure question. I just bring you down a rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Come on. I'm still, I'm still waiting to say, I'm Holy still waiting shit, to say Beverly Housewives. Or... That was so subtle and cleverly yeah. done. We didn't, we, we forgot we even asked the question. Thank you for reminding <laughs> us. So. Now, President, what is your guilty pleasure? Is it, is it a cooking TV show? Is it like something. watching the weather? Is there anything that you could class as a guilty pleasure? Or some people don't believe that anything, by and large, should be guilty if it's a pleasure. I don't think anything's no. a guilty pleasure at all. Like, I, I find myself just mm-hmm. falling into certain things and watching TV and being curious. Like, I, I do flick. Like, you talk about cooking TV. I love that stuff. I love it. Like, I love stuff that my brain is not being used in any capacity. I don't need to think about it <laughs> and I need to just sit in my hole and do nothing to watch this mm. and I don't need to try and process what they're yeah. saying and like yeah. that is all that's whether it's cooking whether it's baking whether it is I love like kind of just I, I I used to love really great talk shows but they're really kind of diminishing now I, I love great interviewers I yeah. love go- watching good interviewers and it's not a guilty pleasure but I do like morning breakfast I have to say morning breakfast is what I like about it is it's exactly that. You're you're never going to put anything on morning breakfast that's going to overwhelm me or, you know, make me go, oh my god, this is going to be an awful day. And I like that. Yeah, but we but we will show we will do an item on showing you how to fold yeah, your underwear correctly to make you you to use up the crucial, right amount of space. Crucial part of of it's a life skill like now. I'm, I appreciate that kind of content. And I, I'm not the only one who finds yeah, it very, quite calming yeah, very to well. watch Simon Delaney fold in Y fronts on oh, nine a.m. on this Saturday morning. <laughs> And and and, and uh, I, like still one of my like Tommy when he oh some of the Tommy's had some absolute crackers oh the, and I Jesus love it Christ he, yeah like, it absolutely. just it just it's you know it couldn't it's the right guy to happen because he wouldn't give 
Like he he's the type of lad you can shake that no, stuff absolutely. off, no problem. Yeah. Like he's just got a great mentality. Like one hundred percent. But it is like watching a dog trying to open a deck of cards with boxing gloves on. Sometimes it really is. It's just beautifully honest. It's just, it's just, what? I love it. Let's change that for a second, Brezzy. Uh, given your uh, background and your, your current state as a musician, that was well phrased by me. Um, did you ever have a desire to contribute music to, to film or TV? Whether it was with the band or, or solo or in any, any capacity? I think back to, um, or, or sorry, maybe I should ask you first, has any of your music ever been picked up and used on a, on a television show? I think of Bell X One back in the day and they had a song, I think it was used on, what was it, The O.C. or some huge American teen Definitely drama. Remember, yeah. Is that what it was? And they exploded in America as a result or certainly got a big boost. Yeah, we've had a couple of really good things. Like we, the biggest one we had was Cougar Town. Like we remember that show, we'd, one of our songs, yeah, yeah. a big song ended up being the kind of theme song for a period of time. And, and to be perfectly honest, if you're a musician, the single only way you can actually really make money is through sync. It's, it's, it, is, it is a good way to, to make a living. So when you get them, you, you just celebrate them. Uh, we also had a pretty good sync in Gavin and Stacey that has been really run three, four, 300 million times on every TV channel oh, wow. across the That Jeez. was a good one. But like we've had, for me, actually, my partner, Louise, uh, writes <clears> for film. And it's a it's a different art form. It's, uh, writing for film is is yeah. feeling. It's, it is when we write music, like depending on the type of music you write or the type of production you do, you're very much thinking of like this is the problem. This is why I've lo- fell out of love a little bit with it. You're thinking of Spotify playlists. You're thinking of radio. You're thinking of all this stuff that you've literally no control over. And it tar- starts to really taint your output and it starts to taint how you think about what you're doing. So I've changed all that. And I've just come back to, you know, I grew up, look, my love of music really formed in the 90s with kind of grunge and rock and 90s rock, like Weezer and, you know, Pearl Jam, bands like that. I used to love these bands. So that's kind of what my writing is. But with film, I definitely feel what I'm starting to do now is on the podcast stuff that I'm doing, the audio stuff that I'm doing, the documentary stuff that I'm developing, I'm putting the music to it because I know exactly what I want. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it is a skill set. Some of the best film composers in the world, like especially for horror, like the horror lads, like Clint Mansell and people like that. He, like yeah, yeah. it is, I just have this vision of them just being in the, horrendously dark and it's just it in the way that horror movies like the conjuring has the same build so the build is all it, it builds really quietly and then there's a pause and then you're fucking you shit the dogs it's like and there's a pause is generally three to six seconds so i've timed all this and every scary moment and wow. watch the conjuring one and two again so you get this crescendo in the music and you get this low-end rumble. It's like, oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. And then it stops and you're like, oh, thank God. Shit, the dogs comes in. And then bang. I'm like, <laughs> I'd love to do that. I'd love to watch a film and just to yeah. sit there at my kind of operatic yeah. keyboard and go, oh, every time. Like, but it's I'm, amazing to think, though, that the, the genius of a director is thinking about that on the floor when he shoots. Oh, but I think, surely you think not, sometimes when you're acting that, like, because, like, without the music, the colour... And, but 100%. Like, you must have yeah. to try and think of like, did they ever say to you that this is the type of music we may use here? 
100%. And again, James Wan, James Wan was so detailed that he would tell you what sound effects he was going to use. There's a scene in The Conjuring 2 where we, I knock into the neighbors who's heard something. And I come into the house and we're standing with two policemen and the lady of the house. <clears throat> and in the script, there's a noise heard off screen. So when we went to shoot it, James Wan said, I'll tell you what the noise is. He said, it's going to sound like someone's tearing a tree trunk apart. And you're going to hear that in the rafters above the kitchen. Murdered his crooked family and loved a crooked laugh. And we thought, okay. And he said, just to help you, I'll do it. And he took a fucking microphone. And when he when the scene was playing, oh he made a ripping sound. So we got that instant look. We knew exactly what he was talking about. But music it's is best, so yeah. important. It, even in a written even in a written uh, script I wrote myself recently, I always open scripts with music because it puts you in a place and a time and a it mood, does. and it sort of sets it sets the path actually, as to where you're going. Vicky uh, Feelings film, Vicky's. Friend of mine and and I wrote a song called "Play God," which was kind of about a conversation me and her had about how she <clears throat> feels that she's she's going to live the life that she has. That's her, you know, and mm. there was a, a documentary that they made about it, about her her life, and it's it's you know it was in the, the Dublin Film Festival and it's going to be released now. I think that song was in it, and you know when you're writing a song like that you can very much picture what it would be and that so we yeah. it's the opposite of writing for film when you're writing a song about a very specific thing like that <clears throat> you actually have to create almost a visual in your head or, a, or, or an image in your head of what you're writing about you can't so that it's, it's kind of reversal of it but yeah I, I think writing for film and tv it's a very 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 lucrative space for for the really good guys that do it mm. Uh, and there's some brilliant, brilliant people. Um, we had Dave Moore had a song on on a on a Netflix. What's that 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 Netflix TV show? It's like a a crime one that's huge. It's on. A, it's based on a book. I can't really think, but it's a massive one. Um, it's English, but it's massive show. And Dave was asked. His mate was one of the directors, and then he was asked to do a kind of a jazz version of uh, "Creep" by Radiohead. And he kind of. Kind of text me no. like I have I I know what I want to sing, but I'm not kind of sure how to produce it. And I was like, right, give it to me. And it was like I got myself and Keen and Camden, and we put this big jazz version of it. And I thought it was just a pitch. And then maybe a year later, I'm watching this show, and was, that's the, that's the fucking thing we did. And Louise, my missus, was singing on it. And it was a scene in this where they were about to bury a body in a car, and they just did this really jazz dance in front of the car before they threw the body into the dump and i was just looking at louise going jesus christ like like it's just that type of stuff is shocking but they like dave to be fair he even he was shocked i think <clears throat> he kind of knew it was getting but we didn't know what it was going to be on but there you go i, I can't think of the show though. that's incredible that's amazing that's, now i hope Come dave here, wasn't going oh crazy i i didn't know it was commissioned and on tv i hope he coughed up but you don't need to answer that or he did of course Dave wouldn't have that in him not to dave is the most honest fecker i've ever met in my life absolutely <clears throat> So listen, what's down the road, Brezzy? What's what's the next, the foreseeable future hold for you? Are you diving back into music? Are you podcasting? I know you, you're out the door with podcasts and you mentioned documentaries as well. What's what's taking your, your focus? Um, my focus at the moment is I'm working on um, a spoken word album that is kind of collaborations album with musicians, but kind of a mind, mindfulness kind of 
approach to it where I kind of do the guidance and stuff like that, but I kind of get my favorite musicians and they kind of put the music with it. So yeah, that, that's good. something I'm, I'm really en- uh, enjoying at the moment. But on the podcast stuff, like I was doing 15 podcasts a week, like I was doing the Wake Up Wind Down, and we yeah. only started those podcasts to kind of get people through the pandemic. It was the lockdowns, and I, I just couldn't sustain it. It was just absolutely rinsing me. I was so exhausted all the time. Mm-hmm. And you're you're taking on pretty big topics every <clears> week. So that kind of came to an end, and I was left with just where's my mind. So I kind of went, I wanted to, I wanted, I'm really interested in kind of the West Cork format of podcasting in the kind of deep storytelling, the deep research and fact checking of a story. I think mm-hmm. audio, the beauty of audio is that if I was trying to do this documentary on TV, I would take, I'd have to go to the BAI. I'd have to wait 10 years to get, I'd yep. have to <clears throat> beg for a commission on it that I probably wouldn't get paid for, or I, you know, I'd lose mm-hmm. my arse on it. I'm like, I'm not doing that. I, audio is just so dynamic. I can just create this and create the imagery for everybody else and and just spend all my time and resources on the story and telling that great story and really for me with this though i want an outcome from it um i i believe that that our past in ireland is a past that we need to really unlayer because it's caused so much shite to so many people that I think we, we think we've kind of dealt with it. We haven't. And I think the only way that we're no. going to actually develop better systems of care for mental health <clears throat> people is to acknowledge what we used to do and how we did it and how we can do it better. And so I, I want to use podcasting always like when I set up a lust for life, which is our charity, like we're in, we're in like uh, 750 primary schools. Now my goal was always to, how do we shift this? How do we shift how people look at this and, and deal with this. And I, I think we like to think in mental health, we've come really far. I think society has, I think our conversations have, but I think our systems haven't. And I think our systems have stayed draconian and not appropriate and not good enough. And we have to do something to move that, to catch up with the conversations <clears throat> that society is now having. And so we don't have to keep hearing helpless mothers week in week out not being able to get help for their children so this is the stuff we got to do it's not glamorous it isn't it, it's a deeply mm-hmm. it's deeply passion driven but yeah societal change is tough and i think to me now it, it's now or never because i think after the pandemic we have this real understanding of what it takes to be emotionally well and mentally well and what it feels like to not feel that and what it you know the terrifying feeling of not being able to sleep for weeks to to you know crippling anxiety and there's people who live with that every single day and struggle to get help so i think a lot of the podcasting that i want to do wants to tell great stories but wants to shift the dial in in, in what we're doing <coughs> in this in ireland i think well, podcasting is, is, is a great medium that you can use to its to its fullest um, and to its best. Before we say goodbye, w- one final question, and you've been very generous with uh, all manner of theories in 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 your time today, Niall. But the, w- the most important one, we we need an answer to. Everyone is crying out for an answer. Christ, even the manager of Manchester United doesn't seem to have the answer. Oh, yeah. What is your theory? Therefore, what is the answer to Man United's chronic woes? Oh, I want to Jesus. start by saying this. I'm not a Manchester United supporter. I'm a Celtic. I was brought up. My mum's Scottish. Brought up Glasgow. I I think it. I think football needs United to be good. 
I think it's important for football in general and the Premier League that United is are strong. I also think it's important that the other clubs are strong as well and you don't have that huge division. But there's, there is nothing like being... There's nothing... Because I've been part of toxic cultures and environments before and there's nothing that can fix them. They're, they're so rotten and so poisonous that they literally diminish everybody, everything from everybody around it. And it's an energy. You can sense it. And you can feel it. Now, I don't know if United are going to get the finger out of their arses and start, you know, getting their shit together. But then the argument, people go, oh, they're paid this much money. That's not the fucking argument, lad. Stop saying that ridiculous argument. If you've ever played elite sport, you realize that if the culture is toxic, it's fucked. It is fucked. I'll give you an example. I remember, and it wasn't toxic, but uh, when I was with Leinster, Leinster, it wasn't very together. There weren't a very together squad. There was cliques, you know, people were kind of, had their own thing, brilliant players, lovely people, but you know, it certainly wasn't toxic, but it wasn't, didn't feel like you wanted to be part of it. I think Leo Cullen came back from Leicester. He was in Leicester and he went, this needs to fucking change. This needs to change. This isn't working. And I think it's either the year after or the year after that, they won their first European Cup. So how did you I think so? I don't know. I genuinely, that's the point. But the, the theory for me is that, like, I mean, it's a, everyone has a theory on, on it and everyone's like Alex Ferguson when they watch the game. But for me, mm. I can only feel that that's what's wrong because they're not shit players. They have a good manager. <clears throat> well, he's he's a proven manager. They've had God knows how many now. The players don't feel in any, they don't look like they like each other. It reminds me, remember that English team that went to the World Cup or Euros and they were all sleeping with each other's wives and stuff like that and you could yeah, see yeah. it and they hated yeah. each other. You can't play sport at that level. You don't have to love each other, but you have to have a real deep desire to to win together as teams. And if you have a toxic, rotten culture, which is so clear now at this point in United, that none of them are taking, the players aren't taking personal responsibility for it. They're just not taking the personal accountability for it. We're watching pundits week in, week out, kind of just ripping the heads off each other. When the pundits have more passion than the players, we're in fucking deep trouble. When you're a player, and I've been involved, we didn't win the league for 30 years at Liverpool, right? Just look at me when I'm talking to you. We didn't win the league for 30 years, right? Yeah, so, you've only got the players well, but we went break. through it. No, I'm not going to cut the players, but, I'm saying, but they have to take responsibility. When well, you're a player, do you think, oh, why would I wonder times, what Joe Glazer's doing how tomorrow? Many times, I wouldn't care less. How many times you have to do better for the team here? when you play? How many times are we going to sit here and say those players need, lack leadership, personality? Well, the owners have developed the culture. The owners are parasitic owners. They they treat the club like a personal ATM. They've taken out over a billion pounds in dividends uh, since turning the club into from one of the uh, from the greatest sports brand financially in the world overnight to saddle them with a debt of five hundred million, which still stands at three hundred and sixty three million. They serve as a debt of eighty million a year from the profits. Two months ago, they took out twenty-four million each in dividends. Um, so, and I guarantee if you rang either of them today and asked them what was the result on Sunday, neither of them would tell you because they don't give a question. Uh, so, so that so that bleeds down. That bleeds down. Nile is my theory because they've hired the wrong people and put them in the wrong jobs. They haven't looked at the. They hired a manager last year, Ralph Ragnick, with a specific job of going in there, identifying the problems in the squad produce a dossier and tell us. He did. The problem was he did it within a week on television live. <clears throat> he said the club needs uh, open heart surgery. They didn't like that. He's supposed to still be there. He was supposed to leave and then remain for two years as a consultant. They fucking got rid of him because he mentioned that things are fucked at the club. He presented the new incum incoming manager with the, do with the dossier. 
supposedly detailed down to don't trust him. He's a bad influence. Get rid of him. He's shit. Replace that. Identified replacements and targets, and none of them have been addressed. So that is happening at the management level, i.e. the recruitment structure being led by the two uh, guys in Tampa. So once that remains in place, you're dead right. Would you take a United absolutely on firing on all cylinders, but owned by Saudi Arabia? Uh, Would you take that? No. In actual fact, what I'd love to see happen next Monday night when they play Liverpool at home is I'd love to see them drop the entire squad and play the youth team and let them get beaten 8-0 and then you'll fucking see where you're at. Because Old Trafford, by the way, will be empty next Monday. And until until that balance sheet isn't healthy enough to serve as a debt, they won't take notice. So I couldn't give a fuck. I know they're going to... I can't see where the next point comes from, let alone win. So I, I, what I would do if I was Ten Hag, first of all, if I was Ten Hag, I'd fucking walk away because he's about to ruin his reputation, which he's built over six, eight years. If I was Ten Hag, I'd grow some bollocks, I'd take the entire squad out, and I'd play the reserves. He brought them into training yesterday. Bet you're glad you asked this fucking question I, now, Aiden. He brought them into training yesterday on a supposed day off, and he made the entire first-team squad, including Ronaldo, run 13.8 kilometres each because that's the distance that the Brentford players covered on Sunday. United players covered you eight. See, but the thing hours. about it is any anyone who works, any sports psychologist will tell you that that's not going to do anything. No, it's not. But what is he supposed to do? Let them have their day off and go home and go, ah, fuck it. It's just to the wages yeah, aren't going to This is why it's so frustrating, I, I'd imagine, is it doesn't seem like there's anything that could be done here. And that, that's what feels a bit overwhelming. No, there isn't. Not until not until there's major structural change made above the management. Yeah, people think you know the idea. Of, yeah, the, but the the owner the owner thing to me football I, I've lost love for football a long time ago. It's 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 just oh, basically a, a neoliberal, uh, you know, cauldron. It's all it is, and you know, golf is going there now. All sport is going yep. there, and that's just the way it is. And we have to either get get on it or. Which is why, you know, people, when you break it down, just absolutely fall in utter love with the purity of hurling and the GAA and stuff, mm-hmm. because all this shit doesn't mm-hmm. actually really come into it. And I understand sport is a business. It's not me. I'm not some romantic gobshite who, who's like, you know, I played sport. I, I adore sport. But it's it, when, when you when it becomes a transactional marketplace, <clears throat> we're in trouble. It's, that, that's what the NFL is. That is what premiership is now. It is what every single you know sporting any sport that's big rugby you know if rugby was a bigger game globally if it had more clubs playing and more teams playing and more countries playing it'll happen in rugby you know it just is the way it is and and people say with the golf you know the live golf thing it's the big debate and everyone's talking about it you know if they just came out and were honest about it i'm just doing it because i want to be fucking minted grant then don't give me the self-righteous bullshit about trying to do but don't give me that bullshit Trying to, yeah, trying to grow the game. If you just say you're doing it for the pocket, grand. You're still being a, it's still a yep. shit decision and people, you know, but if that's what you're doing it for and you want to provide for your kids, kids and their kids, you know, go for it. But don't be self-righteous about it. Don't tell me you get you care about, you know. Well, no, I think... What I would love if the Coen brothers made a film about Manchester United. That's what you want. So the, yeah. I didn't even get to that, but they're my by far my favorite directors. And if it happens, if it happens, I'm <laughs> playing Cantona <laughs> in the Vegas years. <laughs> What's that thing? I'm playing John Stam. Malkovich, John Malkovich is ten hag somehow, somewhere, maybe. Yeah, yeah. 
may not no, work. What was that lanky like goalkeeper again? The big lanky lad. And the, uh, the big uh, yeah, uh, star all day, every day. No, I think you'd be Gary Pallister. <laughs> a bad one. Actually, I actually take Gary Pallister. I'd be back in the day. Really... I'll be Andre Konchelskis. Yeah. I just need to grow about half a foot. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Good luck with that documentary and indeed all your own podcasts and indeed your music and everything else with the blizzards. And most importantly, uh, with your work in the area of mental health. It's very much appreciated. Cheers, man. See you later, lads. Thanks, Niall. Leopards don't change our spots. There's too many bluffers at this club to get United back to the very top. What a guy Niall Breslin is. He is a man of many talents, but also interests. I'm fascinated by his um, his post-pandemic, or did it happen during the pandemic, that he all of a sudden went from hate and horrors to I can't get enough Loving of them. them. Yeah, isn't That's, that mad, isn't it? You know, and he's into his psychology. He needs to psychoanalyze that one. That is, uh, that is curious. Uh, but what a great guy. A gentleman, and thank you, Niall, for your time. Um, we've almost run out of time. I'm going to give you one quick recommendation. I was going to say I'll give you a quickie, Edo, but it's pointless because it's a podcast. I can't touch it. So the recommendation I have this week very quickly is a book written by a favourite author, by, and I've mentioned him on the show before, chaps, or Roberto Saviano. He is the man, the genius behind the book, the movie, and the TV series, Gamora. He's an Italian crime drama writer. This book is called The Piranhas. Uh, it's not his latest one. It's a couple of years old. Fantastic. This one's set in Naples, and it centres around a young gang called the Paranze, which is the chil- these are children's gangs who he says split their time between uh, play- on Facebook and playing Call of Duty. But these young fellas are roaming the streets of Naples carrying AK-47s terrorizing local residents in order to mark out their territory of their mafia bosses. So these are the underlings who work for the big boys. Um, much like Gamora, it's a, it's a real page turner. You can you can almost see this being a TV series and hopefully it will be at some point. Um, but it's one of the latest offerings from Roberto Saviano, who is still in hiding, by the way. We spoke about that as a Netflix recommendation a couple yeah. of years ago. And I'm gone very quickly before my mic dies. He was speaking at such a pace. Well, I learned this week that a Fisher-Price microphone is not industry standard when it comes to recording a proper podcast, Simon Delaney. Yeah, and I've learned if you bang it off the fucking desk hard enough, it will work again. (laughs) Bye!